This is the Naked Genetics Podcast, taking a look inside your genes. We're returning to the scene of the crime with another look at the latest techniques in the world of forensic genetics. Can we really predict physical features or even ethnicity from your DNA? And what does this mean for our criminal justice system? It's not just the use of a technology, it's also the use of the data and what will you do with the data and um, what is necessary to enable a safe, socially compatible use of these technology. Plus, is the CSI effect real? And our gene of the month would be more at home at a rave than in a lab. This is the Naked Genetics podcast for April 2018 with me, Dr Katani, brought to you in association with the Genetics Society, online at genetics.org.uk. As we heard in our previous podcast about forensic genetics, conventional forensic DNA analysis relies on looking at around 17 specific sites in the genome, which vary in size between individual people. But new techniques are allowing researchers to look at much more information from the whole genome, including the epigenetic information that reflects when genes are switched on and off. So what can this kind of so-called big data tell us about populations and individual people? And might it be useful for forensic scientists? One person trying to figure it out is Ed Schwalbe, Senior Lecturer in Bioinformatics and Biostatistics at Northumbria University in Newcastle. This is something that has only recently been able to be investigated. So to sequence a human genome, and the first draft was completed in the early 2000s, cost originally over a billion dollars. That cost has exponentially lowered over the intervening um, 17 years, and now it's approximately $1,000. So this really democratizes the availability of this information so that people like myself are able to take large data sets from many different people and start to investigate the differences between them. And of course, if we want to put this into a forensic context, it's identifying, characterizing those differences and seeing how those can be placed on a particular uh, group of people or a population to identify them. I've done a lot of podcasts talking to people who are looking for genetic differences in disease. They're saying, why has one person got this disease? Why has another person got a different disease? But you're talking about just the kind of variations that make people who they are. You were talking about disease then, but there's many other things about us that are different. So you just have to look around a bunch of different people and you'll see that we all have differences. So eye colour might be one. And you can look at a few locations in our genome and identify variation there that might predispose you to having blue eyes or brown eyes or green eyes. Um, and of course, there are other characteristics which define us as well. For example, um, the colour of our skin is under um, genetic control and you can infer many other things about us. Um, so propensity to have freckles, for example, um, from variations in our genome. So if you were trying to investigate what someone looked like just from looking at their DNA sequence, you could make a sort of a, a rough photo fit. How accurate would it be or what sort of other information do you need? So at the moment it's not so advanced that you can predict someone's face or what they might look like just from, from their DNA, but I, I think that's probably somewhere that we can somewhere that we can aspire to, to reach in the future. At the moment the, the term is ethnogeographic SNPs. So they say something about your ethnicity and they also might say something about where you came from. 
Um, a, a SNP is, is a, a variation of just one letter in our genome. So you're comparing lots and lots of people, lots and lots of data sets and saying what are these single variations that we can group people under by where they come from or, or what they might look like? Yeah, so um, it's, it probably sounds very complicated but in reality it's a very simple concept. You just take a whole bunch of people with one particular characteristic, a whole bunch of people with a different characteristic and then you just look at the difference between them. So in the past we might have done this on a gene-by-gene gene basis or on a candidate-driven basis um, with this new approach where we have access to whole genomes worth of data. You don't have to have that hypothesis. You can just look and identify the best discriminators between those groups. Also we do know with genetics it's not just what you've got it's what you do with it that counts. How can you start to use the data sets that you've got to try and work out not just what's in someone's DNA, but what they're doing with it? How much are they turning on different genes and that kind of thing? I think that's quite a difficult question. So for example, to put it into context, if you're born with the ability to grow very tall, then if you have good nutrition during your childhood, then you will end up being very tall. However, if you have a restricted nutrition and are often malnourished during your childhood, you'll end up a lot shorter than you otherwise would have the potential to be. So I think the point there is um, that genes don't define everything about you. It, you're a consequence of um, your genes, but also the environment in which you live. So this is where we get to the world of epigenetics, kind of the marks on top of the DNA and, and that kind of information. Every cell in our body has the same DNA, but obviously uh, a kidney cell would look very differently uh, from a neuron in our brain. And the reason, of course, they look different is because different genes are switched on um, at different times and in different places. So one of the mechanisms by which we can control which genes are switched on is through this process of epigenetics. So there are very many different levels um, at which epigenetic control is placed on our cells. Um, the simplest of which, which is one of, the most, one of the ones that I'm most interested in, is something called DNA methylation. So this is where you just add a little chemical tag to, to one of the letters um, in our genetic code. So it's a, it's a letter called C. And this can help determine whether a gene is switched on or off. So you've got even more data now. You've got all your DNA data. You've got all your epigenetic, your DNA methylation data. What sort of things are you looking for? What's it telling you? One of the most obvious applications is as a biomarker, so a biological marker for, for some sort of outcome or change. So in a forensic context, this might be um, distinguishing different body fluids from one, from one another. So in a forensic investigation, often there'll be blood, there might be saliva or semen or other types of biological materials. And it can sometimes be important to identify what materials are present, particularly in cases of sexual assault. So current methods are not that precise and are very prone to cross-contamination, so positive results from um, substances other than the one that they're designed to detect. So if you can identify these DNA methylation patterns that are specific to blood or to saliva or to semen, um, then it's very straightforward then to identify these particular fluids and that can be obviously useful for police for their intelligence gathering. I've also heard it said that if you want to commit perfect crime, you have to be an identical twin and get your identical twin to do it, and then you have a rock-solid alibi. So can epigenetics and these kind of epigenetic marks tell the difference between twins? You know, is, is this finally the kind of the forensic nut that, that twins can't dodge anymore? Yeah, so it might seem like a very obscure and unrealistic scenario, but in fact this does happen. So notably in France, um, there was one of a pair of identical twins committed a rape and they were unable to identify which of those twins had actually committed the rape. So it is important. So um, 
as, as we've been saying, um, the DNA methylation marks that we have um, are a product of us and our genetics, but also of our environment. So even though identical twins may have a very similar environment, they nevertheless will still have differences. It is possible that, for example, a blood sample from these um, from identical twins will have different methylation patterns and in this way um, you can distinguish them. So the, the other way in which you can distinguish these identical twins is by doing very very deep genome sequencing so you can identify very very rare mutations that are unique to, to one, of our, one or the other twin. So looking towards the future what sort of information do you think will start to come out of this big data approach looking at lots and lots of genomes looking at lots and lots of epigenomes what sort of things are you interested in in finding out So one of the very exciting technologies that's come along recently is a, is a British based company called Oxford Nanopore and they are able to using their machines you're able to do very very rapid sequencing and not only that you can read the DNA methylation patterns directly so you don't have to have that intermediate step which requires the chemical modification so using this type of system in future it's feasible that you could read someone's um, DNA profile in almost real time also say something about the nature of the sample that was um, recovered that identified that individual so was it a blood sample was it a semen sample for example and I think these sorts of applications are very exciting for forensic genetics because potentially then you could have crime scene handheld devices that could very rapidly and robustly identify a suspect's DNA profile also say something about as we were talking about before their ethnogeographic um, nature in terms of their probable eye colour, skin colour, etc, etc, and then also say something about um, the body fluid type. It sounds like the uh, crime dramas of the future need to start incorporating that kind of technology. Yeah, I think so, and I think it's been a, sort of a long-held desire to have sort of handheld testing at the crime scene. Here in Newcastle, there's a company called Quantum DX, uh, and they are also trying to develop a microfluidics-based DNA sequencer that can do precisely this. The sort of the tricorder, isn't it? Like, bip, there you go, we're looking for this guy. Absolutely, yeah, and I think it could be really exciting in the future, particularly, it doesn't have to be just applied in forensic context, of course. The probable major use would be in terms of diagnosis of disease. You know, I think that would be fantastic, and I don't think it's that far away, certainly within my lifetime. Edge Falby from Northumbria University. We know that our genes have an influence on how we look, from the colour of our hair and skin to our height or the shape of our face. But when it comes to trying to predict what a criminal might look like from a sample of their DNA, what can we be sure about? What's got potential? And what's pure speculation? To find out, I spoke to Martin Everson, Professor of Forensic Science at Northumbria University. I think we can be sure that there are certain genes associated with the melanin pigmentation pathway. There are genes affecting that pathway that are going, to, are going to affect pigmentation in your skin, your hair and your eyes, I should say the iris of the eyes. And we know what a few of those genes probably are. However, when it comes to predicting what pigmentation you're going to have, we actually can't be all that confident. We can predict it with um, probably better than a toss of the coin confidence, but not massively better than that. And so that might be able to help a criminal investigation, but we need to be very, we need to carefully qualify how confident we can be. Because if we get overconfident, we can very quickly mislead the investigation. So even in terms of things where we are reasonably certain about the genetics involved, 
we still can't predict all that accurately and confidently. And of course, these things are also subject to environmental factors. You can dye your hair, you can wear coloured contact lenses to obscure the colour of your eyes, and you can go out in the sun and get a nice tan. So it sounds with pigmentation, we're like kind of more than 50%, not 100%. So we can be like reasonably in the middle, okay, about predicting that. What about things like the shape of the face? You have a lovely skull on your desk here. Mm. Obviously, different people have different shaped skulls, but then there's the the cartilage, the muscle, the kind of the shape of everything else on top of that. What do we know about the genetics of face shape? What can we read in someone's DNA that might give us some clues about the shape of their face? I think there's very little known in terms of DNA sequences and shape, uh, face shape. Uh, there's, there have been some studies published and uh, the better ones seem to so show associations with a limited number of facial proportions, particularly in the mid-face area around your nose. So how big your nose big is, it's probably in your genes or broad or somebody's nose is the sort of uh, gap between the eyes or those sorts of dimensions of the mid-face and I think so far, in terms of knowing what the genes are down to the DNA sequence level, that's more or less about it. We do know, just from looking at face shape variation geographically, that between the major populations, there are differences in the mid-face area. So people of African ancestry tend to have a broader nasal aperture, less nasal height, whereas Europeans tend to have tall, narrow noses. But... There's a lot of within population variation. So you're going to find some Africans with tall, narrow noses and some white people with short, broad ones. But as a trend, we know that. So we know there's genetics behind it. We just haven't found the genes yet. And what makes it hard to find them is that those genes will be spuriously associated with lots of other genes that relate to people's geographic ancestry that go back for tens or possibly hundreds of thousands of years. So picking the key influences on face shape is quite a tricky problem, really. What's your view of the sort of the idea of a genetic photo fit that some companies, some people are starting to talk about, that you could almost make, uh, say you have a sample at a crime scene, you can make some kind of picture that's a reconstruction of the criminal. Are these just fanciful at the moment? I think it depends on what's being claimed. I think you can probably get a, a, a DNA profile from a crime scene and on the basis of existing population genetics get a rough idea of what that person looks like. So you might be able to get something like that and in the same sense if you've got a DNA profile that reflects a certain type of mixed ancestry I don't think it's unreasonable to assume you're going to get a facial appearance which in a general sense reflects that mixed ancestry. But that's different from trying to claim a mechanistic link between the different genetic markers in your panel and the 3D geometry and melanin pigmentation of those different parts of facial appearance that, that give, you, give you the face that's being portrayed. So that latter issue is one that I'm pretty circumspect about, really. The other one, the former one, the, the general idea that if you get a an ancestry-related DNA profile, you're going to get a reasonable idea of what somebody looks like in a general sense. I don't have a problem with that at all. And investigatively, with certain caveats, I think it's helpful. But with all of these things, whether it's the genes for skin pigmentation or hair pigmentation that we just discussed, 
if it's probative, that's a major problem. If you try to say, if you want to go to court and say, I say beyond reasonable doubt, this is their hair colour, this is their facial appearance, that's a very big problem. And in investigation, there are two issues. One is that you could mislead an investigation by overstating the precision of your method. So you could have thinking, oh, we're definitely looking for this kind of person, and actually the suspect doesn't look like that. Yeah, that could easily happen. Uh, uh, quite honestly, it can happen now with forensic anthropology because that's not an exact science. It's probabilistic. You could say, well, the person's probably male, and probably six feet tall, give or take an inch or two. But if you're not careful, you could be a little bit out and get the wrong height bracket. It's even possible that you could estimate the wrong sex. If, for example, you've got a particularly gracile male skeleton, or you could slip up there. The sim a similar situation applies with genetics in investigation. I think it's very rare that you can be 100% confident. Martin Everson from Northumbria University. <laughs> You're listening to the Naked Genetics podcast with me, Kat Arney, and this month we're looking at the latest advances in forensic genetics and asking what they might mean for the future of criminal justice. Coming up later, our gene of the month is raving one out. But first, from what you see in TV crime dramas, if detectives have got the DNA, that's the clincher, right? Not so fast, says Sophie Carr, Associate Head of Department in the Applied Sciences at Northumbria University. There are some big questions that the judge and jury still need to ask when faced with DNA information from a crime scene. Well, the challenges are traditionally now around how the DNA was deposited. Um, historically, we looked at um, could the DNA have originated from someone else? Um, and we've moved from statistics in the thousands to now statistics in excess of one in a billion. So that doesn't tend to be the issue that's challenged at court. What does tend to be the issue is how the DNA was deposited and could there be an alternative explanation other than what's been put forward by the prosecution. And then the other area that is um, tends to be an area for challenge is ensuring whether or not we've got DNA from one or more individuals. The advances in the techniques we use today have um, progressed significantly to the point we're obtaining DNA from very small amounts of cellular material and it's quite easy to detect DNA from more than one person in the same area. We can have a situation where um, the testing today is so sensitive that we can pick up DNA that's been transferred by an intermediate person. So, for example, I could shake hands with a colleague and transfer their DNA to my hand, and if I then immediately touch another surface, it's possible for me to transfer that individual's DNA to that surface without them having touched it. It's just something we need to be aware of. Um, so the absence of somebody's DNA does not include or exclude them. And also sometimes the presence of DNA, which can be attributed to someone, again, doesn't necessarily mean they're guilty of a crime. So it's very much context dependent. Where's the future of this heading sort of from a, a legal and a scientific standpoint? What I'm looking forward to is a future where we can start to identify body fluids using DNA analysis and that would really help cases um, particularly sex cases where we've got cellular material and we, it's really important for us to be able to identify or comment upon whether that's from a certain body orifice for example could the cellular material be from the saliva in the mouth or could it be from um, body orifice such as the vagina. So that's at that point not just saying who's involved in this but really almost putting together a jigsaw puzzle of what happened at this crime scene? 
Yeah, and it's very it's very pivotal to the case. Um, it may be that an individual is alleging that vaginal intercourse has taken place, and it may be that the counter-argument from the defendant is that it was another form of intercourse, such as oral intercourse, or there may be another alternative explanation for how cellular material was attributed. Now, in all of these instances, we don't have a, a t current reliable test that can identify vaginal material. So it's that ability to distinguish vaginal material from another form of cellular material, such as saliva or contact cells um, sloughed off the skin, that would be important. You've got experience of being in the courtroom, looking at this kind of information, and obviously we've all seen TV programmes mm -hmm. like CSI. How would you say on a scale of sort of one to ten how accurately they portray what's going on? I wouldn't go as far as 10. It's difficult because it's portraying a TV programme. Um, there are things called the CSI effect where, given what, we've, what is in the public domain about the knowledge of science and particularly forensic science, uh, crime scene investigators, how has that affected the jury's expectation of what forensic science can achieve and also what they expect to see in every single case? And whilst forensic evidence can be really pivotal and can provide a lot of information, it isn't always necessary in a case. For example, if we've got cases involving consensual intercourse, quite often DNA or even forensic evidence can't distinguish between whether or not consent was there. Does the jury understand what the capabilities of forensic science are and are those expectations realistic? We would like to see forensic science used or forensic evidence in, in all cases, but that simply isn't possible. It may be that it's a historic case and there's no material there for us to return to, or it could well be that actually there's no body material appropriate to the case to actually even begin to investigate. So in those instances, it's quite normal and routine for there not to be any forensic evidence, and that doesn't necessarily undermine the case itself, but in the jury's perception, it might be that it was something they were wanting or hoping to see. You've mentioned that technology is coming on a lot and the amount of DNA we can look at and all that kind of thing. Is this knowledge kind of keeping up in the legal profession? I wouldn't expect the legal profession to be up to date in terms of the techniques that we're using and understanding it at a scientific level, but what they do need to understand is the capabilities of the testing. And also, it's for me, it's the importance of the scientist to be able to explain that clearly to the legal profession, to the police investigation team, to the juries, so that actually they can make a real assessment of whether or not the DNA is relevant in that case or not. And do you ever come across sort of DNA denialists who are just like, can't be, can't be, can't be, you know, it's, it's, it's not true? I haven't come across any DNA deniers, but there are instances where an individual has a DNA profile matching them at the crime scene, and those individuals, that individual has denied that it is their DNA. It is important then for us to investigate further to ensure we know whether or not that is what we would call an adventitious match because we don't examine DNA to the level of uniqueness so we need to understand is there a potential that actually there could be another explanation for this and that somebody else shares that same DNA profile or is there an alternative way as to how that DNA came to be there rather than what the prosecution case is alleging. That's Sophie Carr from Northumbria University. DNA evidence has been used in criminal cases since the 1980s, and as we've heard over the course of these two podcasts, the technology is advancing faster than ever. But is society keeping up with the pace of progress? 
According to Matthias Wienroth from the Policy, Ethics and Life Sciences Research Centre at Newcastle University, there are still some key ethical and societal crunch points that we need to address. With new technologies emerging, the, the questions here really are always, we need to first establish, before we use them, whether they are useful. What is it that they can do? What is it that they can't do? And also, those who might be dealing with the data that these technologies produce, do they know how to interpret the data? You know, do they get training on this? Um, are they aware of the limitations of technologies? Are they aware even of something quite basic, such as what are probabilities? What does it mean you know, for, for some information to, to be subject to probabilities? The, the, the most important thing, I think, is uh, to consider whether the, the new technology that you might want to introduce is compatible with societal values the values that we uphold or want society and government to, to uphold um, in order for our societies to be considerate and uh, to be safe um, and you know, to, to ensure that these new technologies are not in conflict with uh, civil liberties and human rights. Given that there is such an important role for society to think about should we do this, what should we do, what technologies are acceptable to us, where does society get its ideas from about forensics? Because straight away I can think of TV programmes and sort of this idea that genetics is like the magic crime-solving bullet. Has that portrayal been helpful when trying to get people to think of these new technologies and what might we do with them? To a degree that there is an interest in forensic genetics um, is, can be helpful. But if, if the, the interest is based on expectations that can't be fulfilled, then it's dangerous. It's dangerous for um, forensic genetics itself, because if you are faced with um, expectations by people that you can't deliver on, um, they might lose faith in the technology. And that, of course, is, is a concern, uh, especially in a system where any kind of evidence can have considerable impact on the lives of, of people. Uh, both uh, victims uh, and their families, as well as those who are suspects or even charged with, uh, with a crime. And the other expectation it raises is that you find the criminal. You know, no one's going to watch a, a TV programme where, oh, I don't know, well, it's a probability, we're just not sure, sorry, end. Well, yeah, exactly. It's, it's satisfying in, in uh, popular d depictions of uh, crime investigations that you do find who done it, as it were. And, and that's what makes it so interesting. You know, there, there is this um, uh, pervasive idea of justice being served and justice being done and that technologies can contribute to doing so. And t to a degree, I, I wouldn't, you know, I wouldn't say that uh, technologies don't have a place in, in um, delivering justice, but it could be that even though you do use certain technologies, that they might not help you, in fact, um, in, in an investigation, or they might be misleading. They might um, lead you along a different path, a path that you know, might be full of red herrings, as it were. And that's why it's so important to really understand what the technology can do and what it can't do and when it's appropriate to use it and when it's safe to use it. And sort of moving more widely than just the, the glitzy media, to, you know, TV and films, is this something that the public really talks about? How do we kind of get these debates going to understand that these technologies are coming, we need to think about them? Yeah, then example is the, the current um, debate in Germany where following two murders of, of young students, the public debates started to focus very quickly on new technologies, police, politicians, um, 
forensic practitioners as well as forensic um, scientists were saying maybe we should use these technologies, maybe we should enable um, the criminal justice system to make use of these technologies because they're there. The, the problem here really is that people expect that these technologies would definitely have something to say and contribute to an investigation. But really, we don't know yet whether they would. Uh, we don't know it to, to what extent. And, and that's where, yes, we need more public debate uh, about these new technologies. It, it seems that because the notion of the, uh, the DNA as uh, very reliable evidence uh, in, in, the, in the criminal investigation and even in the trial has been so persuasive um, and per pervasive as well. There, there seems to be that um, idea that we don't really need more discussion. But every time that there is a new technology that claims to do something quite different to previous technologies, I think we do need that um, debate. And this particular technology, forensic DNA phenotyping, as well as by Juga Vaganza street testing, uh, if you will. They are trying to do something quite new. They're saying we're not just comparing different markers on, on the genome, but we're trying to say something about what those particular uh, genes do, you know, how they are expressed uh, in, in the way that a person looks like, or perhaps even in a way that diseases might um, occur, or even perhaps some say um, how people might behave. And I mean, we need to be very careful uh, around those claims and assertions. And it would be helpful to have not just the debates between um, forensic scientists and social scientists and ethicists and policymakers, but also to talk with the wider publics and interest groups um, about what technologies are actually capable of doing and how they might be used. Because what is quite important is that a lot of people seem to forget that it's not just the, the use of a technology, it's also the use of the data that technologies produce. And what will you do with the data? What these new technologies are capable of, uh, how they might be used, and um, what is necessary to enable a safe, socially compatible use of these technologies. Matthias Wienroth from Newcastle University. And thanks very much to all the forensic scientists up in Newcastle for letting me interrogate them about their work. And finally, it's time for our Gene of the Month. And this time, it's Techno Trousers. Unlike our usual colourfully named genes, this one was first found in zebrafish rather than fruit flies. First identified in the rave heydays of the mid-90s through a large genetic screen by German scientists, Technotrousers is one of four so-called crazy fish genes, which, when mutated, cause distinctive changes in the movement of the animals. The other three are the slightly more sensible-sounding roller coaster, wavy and hertz. At just two days old, fish embryos with faulty technotrousers move in a wild and dramatic way, overreacting to being gently prodded by making exaggerated bending movements with their tail, even flapping it against their head. And though you might be laughed out of Berlin's trendy Berghain club for dancing like that, it does look a little bit like the fish are raving one out. Sadly, after four days, they are all clubbed out and become completely paralysed. Fast forward to 2012 and US researchers finally tracked down the gene itself and discovered that it encodes a protein called EAAT2B. This sits in the membrane around glial cells in the brain and shuttles small chemicals called glutamate in and out. Faults in the gene make the transporter overactive, making the brain cells overexcitable and explaining the fish's overexaggerated movements. 
Importantly, faults in EAAT2B and glutamate shuttling in human brain cells are linked to conditions including epilepsy and neurodegenerative disease, so there's a lot that scientists could learn about how to treat these diseases better by studying these funky little fish. All together now, big fish, little fish, cardboard box. Next month, I'll be back with all the latest news from the world of genetics. Until then, if you've got any questions or feedback, just email me, genetics at thenakedscientist.com. You can also get in touch through the main Naked Scientist Facebook page or by tweeting me at Naked Genetics. Every episode of the Naked Genetics podcast is on iTunes and online at thenakedscientist.com slash genetics. The Naked Genetics podcast is brought to you in association with the Genetics Society, online at genetics.org.uk. Thanks for listening. And goodbye.